Welcome to the NCLA podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Mann, and today I'll be talking with our guest, Ken Shelton. Ken and I have known each other for several years. We met in Alabama a few years back where we were both keynoting at the same event. And uh, Ken is just doing some amazing work in the world of equity. He holds a master's in education with a specialization in educational technology, as well as new media design and production. And he's been working in the education field for over 20 years, most recently teaching within the CTE community, uh, teaching technology at the middle school level. As part of his active involvement with educational technology, he's an Apple Distinguished Educator and a Google Certified Innovator. Uh, He works extensively with policy level, and he is a regular keynote speaker and presenter and is just doing some fantastic work in the future of education and in equity and inclusion, cultural relevance, and also within the technology world with instructional design topics. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for having me. I love that intro. Um, Probably even shared the story of you and I working together in Alabama, and we went to uh, the University of North Alabama. And remember, uh, I don't remember what their mascot is, but we went and saw uh, the cage where I think they're the Tigers, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, um, and remember remember we went to the street fair and stuff as well. Oh, that, that was so much fun. I remember us looking for trying to find the perfect um, barbecue <laughs> during that trip, too. Exactly. Um, no, okay, so they're the lions. So remember, they had um, um, lions on campus um, that I remember us going to as well. So That's, that's right. Yeah, I'm sure that's uh, yeah. very relevant with the uh, uh, Lion King rage right now. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today today we're going to be talking about um, some of the issues surrounding COVID-19 and equity. But first, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you've been doing recently with your time since the shutdown orders that took place in California. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I hope all the listeners are able to and effectively can manage Uh, their mental and physical health. I think it's important for us to be mindful of that now and, quite frankly, even going forward when we're past our current pandemic. Um, So for me, I, you know, I uh, like like everybody, my my schedule has shifted quite a bit uh, between a number of postponements as well as some cancellations. Uh, thankfully, I've been able to shift some of the things that I do to a, an online environment. Uh, some of the advisement and consulting I do primarily was distance in air quotes prior to this. So, you know, I think it's uh, it's just it's an adjustment um, on a number of levels uh, for me, just like it is for everybody else. I, I think my default under the current circumstances is more around what can we do to support each other because ultimately we will get past this rather than focus on what my needs are uh, as the driver for the interactions that I have or the things that I post online. So, you know, it's it's just, it's an adjustment. It's an adjustment. And, um, you know, for me, it's, it's, I know it's temporary, but, you know, it's one of those things that, we just have to, again, hopefully the default is we support each other and we're also taking care of our own mental and physical health in that process. 
You know, it's, it's interesting to see how folks do come together in times like this. And, uh, that's, it's, it's been warming to see people really reaching out and taking care of each other. And I think that that's important for us to, to do, even despite the isolation and, you know, making sure that other folks, that their mental health and our own mental health, because we really can't take care of others unless we're taking care of ourselves too. Um, but you know, it, with everything that's ha- happened in COVID-19, a lot of inequities have been brought into light, which is a topic that you and I talk quite a, a bit about, both in person and it's something that I've heard you speak many times around the country, and it comes up in your talks. And I know you're joining us in Cape Cod in October, uh, everything willing, hopefully that will be in person still. And what, this this has become such a hot topic across the country as we see different inequities come to light. A lot of them have already existed, but this has just really made it visible. Um, so what what are some topics that you've seen and what does an equitable learning environment look like? Yeah, so, you know, it, it's, do it, you know, there's a quote. Uh, oh, I will let you share it later. It, that's the quote I was thinking of too. So you'll share it later. I don't want to give it away now. Okay. But, <laughs> okay. but ultimately, you know, there's a couple of things. So a lot of the challenges that exist right now have actually always been there. I'm just one voice of many in this particular space. Uh, there are voices that even existed before mine. And this has shed a lot of light on the inequities that exist both within our social structures and then in the context of this conversation within our educational structures. And, you know, there's, there's two ways of looking at it. There's the policy level way of looking at it. And then there's the individual's way of looking at it. And in fact, it's a reference that I have in my book that I'm working on right now uh, by Alan Johnson that where he breaks it down around the fact that aren't, uh, aren't systems just people. And he actually wrote a book that I would recommend uh, to your listeners that is called uh, The Forest and the Trees. Because, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you can't see the forest for the trees. And his whole sociological perspective is you need to see both the forest and the trees. So you need to see the individuals and the systems. And so ultimately, in, in line with your question, you know, as far as an equitable learning environment, you know, I would first of all, I define equity as access and opportunity. So any equitable learning environment ensures both access and opportunity for all students. And it doesn't mean you treat everyone the same. Treating everyone the same is just as inequitable as treating everyone differently. It means that you have to be a responsive educator, responsive leader, and have resources that can be responsive to the unique needs of all of the students. Um, I brought it up a couple of years ago, and uh, it was interesting to see the reaction. Uh, And especially I could say that the reaction I got was probably drawn on socioeconomic lines where I said that every student should have an IEP, period. You should know exactly what their what their what resources that they have access to, what learning obstacles may exist and what resources the school is going to ensure those students have opportunity and access for to actualize their success. And of course, success is subjective, but ultimately to me. I define success for students 
as by the time you turn 18, you have options. Your options can be either going to college, they can be going into a vocational school. Uh, maybe your school offered has a, which, you know, you and I've talked about this, uh, your school has a robust CTE program that by the time you graduate 18, you have an appropriate certification that you can go into the workforce if you want at 18, or maybe start your own business. My main thing is options. And so ultimately to answer your question, an equitable learning environment is an environment of which every single student is seen and heard and that they have access and opportunity to whatever resources are necessary for them to actualize their success. Wow. And, and the mic drops. That is, you know, every everything that you just said is so point on. I love the piece about the treating everyone the same is inequitable. And that's so, so important for us to remember as educators and as leaders that we really do have to make sure that folks have that ability to, to achieve success. And I appreciate the fact that you that you define success as having those, having those options. And, and, you know, with that, I, I was just reading over San Diego's COVID-19 plan this morning, and I know you're, you're in the LA area, not San Diego, but I'm sure a lot of districts are coming up with these COVID-19 planning assumptions. And one of the assumptions that I saw listed in there was that students will begin the next year with learning deficits in many cases and the most disadvantaged may suffer learning regression. And, you know, that just, that my heart was so heavy to read that, just to think that some people are being set up for success. They're thriving in this environment. I have friends who they have tutors that are working with their kids virtually to make sure that they stay on top of their game. But yet we know that there are other people who their parents have lost jobs. They're having to now take care of their brother and sister. And education is just not a priority. And, you know, we have teachers who are having a hard time being able to really even get the resources to students. And how, how do we address this situation, especially as we move into, well, now we have to address them now because it's um, we're creating a, more of a divide. But what do we do in a post-COVID era? Well, you're you're right, and and even further to some of the examples you just shared. I mean, how many students are actually working, and they're deemed quote unquote essential? So you know, it's not even a function of whether they want to or don't want to do any of the schoolwork. They can't because they're working because they're quote unquote essential. And I mean, and that's and 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 you even get into the whole thing, which you know, as as I you know, I I, I will share it in in a blog posting, uh, is a whole idea around connectivity. I remember seeing an article, uh, which I will uh, I'm going to link to it in my uh, blog post that, uh, you know, here in Los Angeles, at one point last month, uh, so latter part of March, um, the uh, Los Angeles Unified School District. One at least one third of the high school seniors had not connected to their teachers online. Wow! And of course, the first reaction was, "Oh my God, what are they doing? They need to get connected." And 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 of course, my thinking was, "How do you even know they have a connection in the first place?" <laughs> so right. you know, it's it's it, between that and you know, again, I, I I saw I saw this on this this line, and I don't know who to cite and attribute it to. But it really, it not only did it resonate with me, it's something that, I, again, I'm going to stress and emphasize. Um, and it just, and it says, be aware of when privilege tries to speak everyone's stories. It's not true. Mm, that is powerful. Wow. It, it, I agree. That's why I saved it. Because 
I'm again, I, I mean, I look at social media and I see, well, this is working and this is working and this is great. And, and you've got a lot of, of, of people that self-identify as thought leaders, which is a whole nother problem I have, but they, and they're like, oh, this is how it works. And you go to this app and you do this and this and this. And I'm like, no, that's how it works for some. You're providing a solution and you should stress the fact that it is a solution, but also comes with an asterisk. This is a solution if you have all the following conditions in place. And so for me, it's like, I, I, I will say that the flip side though, is I have seen where uh, those that do have connections or, or connectivity, um, many parents are actually rejecting the curriculum that the school is sending home, whether it's a stack of worksheets or something like that. And they're basically saying, look, you know what? My child is not in a traumatic environment in school. And so I'm going to provide my child with a learning experience that is aligned with their cultural identity. Uh, and in fact, I've actually sent some stuff to several friends where I'm like, okay, if that's what you want to do, I have resources and books for you. And um, I will happily video chat with your child to examine some of the things that they're consuming, whether it's reading or videos or something like that, that supports them get developing a deeper understanding of themselves that, that you know, at to this, up to this point, they were never provided that opportunity in school. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's it's, again, it's bringing a whole lot of things to light now that we're always there, but now, now you can't unsee it. And so, you know, I'm hopeful that this will uh, be a catalyst for the, the right degrees of change going forward. But I know that there's going to be the inevitable resistance to that because ultimately, as I always share, someone is always benefiting from the status quo and they will do whatever they can to maintain those benefits. Wow. You know, and that's, I am a, every week I meet with a group of, of people from around the country who are forming this task force to address the, uh, the equity issue that's been revealed through what's happening right now. And one of the things that came up last week in our conversation was the sense that kids who, who've been abused are now stuck at home with these shutdown orders with an abuser 24 seven, you know, school was where they could escape and now to add to all of these other inequities, they're now with that person all the time. So, I mean, it's just, there's just so many different layers. That's right. That's right. Uh, and even that just, that's one of those that it, 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 it simultaneously enrages me, but it also is just, it's like a gut punch because what, what does that say that the only safe place for some children is in school and now you can't go there. And, you know, the pressure being put on a lot of teachers to automatically shift to uh, a learning style that you may not have been provided professional development support on. And, and I've stressed it. You had mentioned earlier uh, when you were going through my bio, you know, part of my master's degree is in in design, new media design and production, which is includes instructional design. I had to take a full year of classes around designing for instruction, excuse me, classes that were aligned with designing for instruction in distance learning and e-learning, a full year in my master's program. So it is totally, totally unrealistic and irresponsible to expect a teacher to automatically shift to a completely different style of learning, environment for learning. And here's the catch. I was in a master's program where, you know, I had access to a computer 
I had to go physically to class at, at the university. I mean, like you, there are so many variables that exist now that it's already hard enough to shift to a completely new um, pedagogical uh, perspective when it comes to learning. But then the fact that you cannot guarantee access to the necessary resources, it's just, it's too much. It's too much. And I, I just, this is why I really, you know, I don't blame teachers, quite frankly, at all in, in a large regard to a lot of this. Um, and, and quite frankly, I, I, I don't even blame administrators to some degree. It's, if you didn't know, now you know. And to quote one of my, my personal heroes, Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. So, you know, it, it really has brought to light a lot of things that, that were always there. And, and now you can't, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Oh, I, and I love that quote. Once you I, I know to do better, you have to. And we, we can't let this, um, this whole situation, uh, we can't try to return to normal after this situation. We've got to address these issues. And, you know, and I think about when, about even my husband, he had his first video conference call last week and he'd never done it. He'd never done Zoom before. So I was trying to teach him how to get on and how to make sure that his knowing whether his video was on or not, all those little pieces, he's in the medical field. So that's just not a part of his reality. And for our CTE teachers who, they're, they come to us from industry in most cases. So this whole idea of being able to now go from teaching a construction class or medical assisting, you know, these hands-on classes to moving to a virtual environment, that's a, that's huge. That's a, a, a really um, huge undertaking for folks to be able to try to even wrap their head around. And, you know, everyone's at different levels. Like you said, you have a whole year of experience in this. And, you know, other folks, this is just, it's brand new. Right. And, you know, you just brought up something that, that I, I think becomes a part of the new norm. So, you know, it, while, it, while it may not be a popular thing to say because it's provocative, but the structures that we were operating under, you know, starting as much as six months ago, they never were sustainable and they never were um, equitable. So I'll give you an example like what you just shared. Telehealth needs to be a thing. Like in, in some cases, you should not have to think about think about if I if I need if I need to consult with a, a, a medical professional, let's say it's my doctor. In order prior to this, in order for me to do that, it would have meant that I have to make an appointment, take time off work or go after work, drive to uh, his offices. And then, of course, you wait, you see him, you go from there. When in some cases, uh, you know, for me, and I'm sure this might apply to a lot of a lot of other folks, uh, you know, in, in the country, it might even be just something that I need to consult with my medical uh, professional on something that I don't have to take off work, drive. I mean, like there's so many if you think about what are all of the environmental impacts as well as logistical impacts for just going and seeing a doctor when it can be resolved with telehealth. Not everything, but some things can. And what does that do to alleviate the stress of missing work, productivity, um, driving the environment? And then, of course, as far as a doctor goes, you know, if it's if you're able to schedule, you know, a 15 minute consultation as opposed to me taking up, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes in your office. Think about how you're more accessible to more of your patients as well. So that, that, that's an example of something that I hope completely shifts 
and when we get to some degree of normalcy around looking at our existing structures and looking at what adjustments were made to accommodate and meet the needs of folks now and what should be sustainable from that going forward. That's one example. I, I just, to me, it's mind boggling that that our healthcare industry and the whole infrastructure has not shifted to more of more, more, I guess the best way to describe it is a more accessible model. You, you know, and I'm glad you brought that example up because it's also, it's better for the environment. I had my first physical therapy, virtual physical therapy appointment because I was, I have a pinched nerve in my hip. And uh, instead of going in, we did a virtual physical therapy. He was able to diagnose me based upon having me do a few different moves and seeing where the pain is at. And then he prescribed a, a virtual program where I go in each day, do the exercises, um, I confirmed what exercises I did. He receives a report of whether or not I completed my exercises each day. And it, it, I didn't have to drive anywhere. I, you know, I'm not using fuel. I'm not adding to our pollution here in Phoenix. So there's just so many benefits of that. That's something that, yeah, we've has to be looked at differently moving forward. Right. And, and I want to add, there's one other layer to it as well. You and I have cars, what about those that have to rely on public transportation? How much, um, how, much, you know, and that's- how much more of a logistical challenge does it become when you now have to rely on public transportation um, to be able to do that as well? Wow. That's a, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that piece of it. And, you know, and I think that too, we'll have to, there's going to have to be a change in, um, well, for, for example, my husband had a patient who he did a virtual consultation with but she had to have a form signed to turn in. So her mom had to, to stop by our house, drop the form into our mailbox because of the whole social distancing piece. He had to then sign it, put it back in the mailbox. And, and it was something that there's got to be a way to avoid that to where folks start using, uh, taking advantage of the different technologies to be able to do a DocuSign or something that's, um, that's going, that will be as... Uh, as as valuable as um, having a handwritten signature. Exactly. Well, so then let's take that example, which I'm with you on that. Um, So first of all, yes, an electronic alternative that maintains uh, appropriate um, compliance with HIPAA, as well as, uh, you know, the accessibility of it, but then I would start off by saying you just what you just what we're talking about is yet another in a long, long, long list of reasons why the Internet should be a utility, because if you guarantee that everyone has access and that capacity, then it makes it easier to shift to things like you just said, like electronic signing of documents so that, you know, you don't have to worry about getting the paper, uh, printing the paper. Uh, or or getting it, signing it, driving it here, then bring it back, then do it. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Uh, that entire transaction you just described there, uh, if you if the internet is utility, everyone is in short access. That entire transaction could have occurred literally in less than one minute. Can global events shape generations? And as an example, my grandfather always had would get upset if we didn't eat all the food off of our table because he lived during. World War II, when there was a food scarcity, when he only had potatoes for days at a time. How do you think this pandemic will shape our society and change different societal norms? 
For example, I think about how homeschooling and even being a prepper, that used to have a stigma attached to it, but now that's that's become our norm. That became our that's become our daily lives. What what do you think this impact's going to be and what are some changes that you think that we'll see as a result of what's happening? Well, uh, you you bring up a good point around the homeschooling thing because I I have seen not a whole lot, but I have seen on social media, especially where parents are like, you know what, maybe the homeschooling thing isn't such a bad thing because my child uh, is able to sleep in. My child is able to focus on the work for, you know, an hour, hour and a half. Then they're able to go and take a break. Then they go back and focus on the work. Then if they need access to something, uh, and of course, this this requires a whole lot of res- accessibility resources, but my main point around that is that they're, they're able to do with their child many of the things that we've seen the data, we've seen the um, evidence, and we've seen should be changed in school, but hasn't. So I think what, what actually, let me not even think, what I'm hopeful is that school leaders look at the experiences from a parental perspective and start making, uh, you know, appropriate leadership decisions around things like high school should not start before 830 in the morning, you know, and that's that's a low lift thing to me. And then, you know, if you really think about it in terms of a class schedule, I've even seen this. I mean, it's too bad I'm not a formal researcher because I would actually be conducting some of that research right now. But, you know, if you think of a typical 17-year-old high school day, for the most part, uh, school probably starts at 8 a.m., which is too early. You go to class. Um, And this assumes you don't go to a zero period, which a zero period usually starts at 7 a.m., which is way too early. You go to class for an hour. Then you have a five, maybe six minute break. Then you go to class for an hour. Then you have a five to six minute break. Then you, uh, excuse me, then you have maybe a a mid morning break that's usually only about 15 minutes, which is not enough. Then you go to class for an hour. Then you have a five to six minute break. Then you go to class for an hour. Then you have lunch, which is only 30 minutes. So you see, you've really only gotten 45 minutes of break time. That, you know, who knows how much movement you're able to get. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I used to stress this to my students that I had in class after lunch. Look, 30 minutes. If you want to be able to socialize, play and eat, 30 minutes is not enough time. And what I would find is the kids would literally inhale their food and then go play. And then they come to class with a stomach ache. So I was like, look, you know what? Play. And then if you don't have enough time to eat, I had I was fortunate enough to have a space in my classroom because it was in a bungalow. So it was connected directly outside. So there were a table um, and chairs There were a couple of tables and chairs right outside the door of my uh, classroom. I was like, look, you know what? You can grab one of the Chromebooks or one of the other laptops and you can go sit out there and then just and take your time and eat your food. And I'm like, you know, and I would tell them the only thing I request is you keep the food away from the computer because others are going to need to use it. And then I had sanitizing wipes, so they would wipe down the computers and stuff like that. But, you know, my 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 main point with all of this is that there's a lot of changes that need to occur. And, you know, I'm seeing where some uh, school district leaders are concerned about declining enrollment. Well, guess what? (laughs) You know, there is ways to mitigate declining enrollment that involves flex scheduling, Um, you know, and I, I will I don't know if I'll actually put in a, a blog post, but 
you know, one of the things that I think needs to change is looking at the overall structure of school of a school day and the schedule. Uh, you know, why do you have to take, you know, class after class after class after class after class? And then if you're in a position to or have a desire to participate in any type of an extracurricular activity, you do that. And so your school day, if you think about it, the school day for a typical teen, and this is even true of when I was in high school, school started at 745. Uh, my, I didn't have a last class of the day because I was always playing a sport. So I only had five classes, but I would be on campus from 745 until usually about 5 p.m. And, uh, and sometimes even closer to 6 p.m. And then now you want me to do homework also? I mean, this whole thing really, this whole thing is one where I won't say I told you so, but I will say I told you so to a lot of people that really argued with me about my stance that we need to get rid of homework because they're like, no, it's necessary. Well, guess what? Now now, now look at what's going on with kids at home and, and everything you're seeing now, guess what? That existed years ago as well. And this is why I was always talking about get rid of homework because you, you don't know what the kids have access to at home. So I'm hoping that we'll start to see some of these big changes around that. Um, the whole idea around standardized testing. I mean, there's a reason why the SAT and the ACT are trying to adjust to say, well, now you can take it online because they're losing money. And there's a lot of universities that are like, you know what, when you apply next year, we won't count those scores. And, and those, those because those tests never really mattered anyway. I mean, let's be real. It's just created another another artificial barrier to stratify students and provide those that have the means and the and and the and the access uh, to be able to go to college, and those that don't have to navigate around it. And in fact, I'll add one last thing to this. Uh, you know, kind of what your the question you have here. It's an exercise that I had some educators do at a conference I spoke at. Uh, it was in the workshop um, a couple of months ago. As I said, why don't we do this? Let's take a let's take a major urban city, which we use Los Angeles one. And I said, I'm going to give you some areas, a zip code to search. And then it, I want you to go to that zip code and I want you to do a search for SAT and ACT uh, prep center. And I said, and watch what happens. And of course, it was it. I already knew this, but once they did that search, they, they, they you could start hear the grumbling in the room, or like, "Oh my god!" And I'm like, "Yeah, that's 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 on purpose, by the way." So yeah. I, I'm really hopeful that we will see uh, the changes necessary to dismantle the obstacles that, by design, stratify our students and deny uh, deny the most vulnerable the access and opportunity that they deserve. That it, wow, that is uh, everything you're saying too. It goes along with John Medina's book, Brain Rules, which I think every educator should read. But he uh, talks about the this whole sense that are the schedules. Um, it doesn't go along with how young people, how their bodies work, or even how my body, how I operate. You know, even and I think that we're going to see because everyone's gotten used to creating their own schedules now. I know I've gone from getting up at, you know, for something and being at the gym by 5 a.m. each morning to kind of waking up when I want to and staying up later to get everything done because I haven't had a, a real schedule. And I can imagine for young people, that's even more so. So having the flexible schedules, that's huge. Um, but And then the homework piece and the test, that's, I, that's one of my big pet peeves, as you know, is the sense that tests do not measure what kids know and are able to do anyway. And now we really are seeing the, that the value isn't, isn't what, it's, uh, what we've tried to make it out to be all this time. Right, right. 
You know, and I had a, I had a CTE superintendent ask me last week um, what my thoughts and suggestions were for now that it looks like we might be doing this remote learning for a while, or it could be that we go back and then we're something else, you know, it, it comes again in the fall. So we may end up having to do remote learning again, even if we do go back for a period of time. And as a former CTE teacher and as a parent, what recommendations do you have for CTE leaders as they're bracing for this potential of not going back to school in the fall and having to continue to lead and teach from a re remote environment? So, I mean, part of it, honestly, is being able to assess what resources do the students have access to in the first place? You know, it's a... Uh, it go it, it's the opposite of the of the the norm which is the top down mandates you know it's it, it should be more of okay these are the learning outcomes that were actually any of the outcomes these are the learning experiences we want students to have and we may have to be adaptable to unique experiences but the first step to doing that is being able to identify or at least take an inventory of what resources do the students have in the first place and in fact i brought this up a number of times that now is a perfect time for many educators to essentially be the curator of their students. Curate what your curate the learning of your students. What do you have access to? Uh, what um, you know? What how can how might we utilize those resources in a way that um, gives you you know the right degree of access and opportunity to learning? Um, and in the CTE world, it's it, as you and I know, it, it, it's a little bit more difficult to do that because some programs require, uh, you know, unique equipment. But, you know, the thing is, is I first of all, when we go when we do go back to school, I'm of the perspective that the schedule should not be what it was. Uh, I'm a staunch advocate for going to a year round schedule. And I know that it was not popular when I taught in a Los Angeles Unified School District. And the interesting thing is most of the parents that complained about it were above a particular demarcation of socioeconomic status because they wanted their kids to have their summers off. My whole thing is that that a year round calendar, uh, you know, gives more flexibility to the schools to one uh, under the current circumstances. You know, you're only having two thirds of the student population on campus at any one given point. So that allows for maintenance of the appropriate um, physical distancing protocols that were at least hopefully adhering to right now. It also allows for a broader distribution of school resources. You know, you think about it, every school should, and I stress should, because I know many of them don't, should have a school nurse and a school psychologist there full-time, period. Just like every school should have a teacher librarian there full-time. So if you shift to a different calendar, you know, it's a, in LA Unified, it was called a concept six. If you shift to a different calendar, you now have those, you know, those different entities or resources available on campus, but you're not having to essentially divide them up to a larger population of students. It's you decrease a population, but you keep in place and actually you, you add to those available resources. So I think in terms of a CTE program, it really starts off with what do the students have access to in the first place? And are there ways that, that, that a, a CTE leader, whether it's an administrator or a teacher who oversees a particular program, what are the ways that you could leverage your own resources to ensure access to the students? Uh, and like I said, I know that there are certain programs that it's probably just not possible. You know, the first thing I think of is like welding. You know, if you can't get 
if students don't have access to an arc welder at home, I, I know that it's unrealistic to say to the teachers or a leader, then you need to get them an arc welder in the home because you have all the safety uh, uh, challenges that exist, the storage. I mean, there's so many things you can you have to do along those lines. So to me, is, is the curriculum and the learning experience adaptable so that it mitigates uh, you know the the uh, the lack of growth and learning that 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 will occur without by not having access to the physical hardware. But there is ways that you can augment that so that if and when you do gain access to it, you know you're not starting from scratch again. You you've already covered a significant area. I mean, and this is where again I go to access and opportunity because this is where like in the ARVR world, I I think that would. You start seeing uh, infrastructure investments in that, that does at minimum mitigate the uh, slow growth that would occur by not having access to uh, the physical hardware in the first place. Wow, these, these are some great points. And I, one of the superintendents on the uh, equity task force, he is actually having his teachers move to an 11-month calendar so that they are getting compensated with the extra work that they're going to be doing to implement the changes that are needed. And I think that's something that leaders have to keep in mind as well, is that making sure that when we have these extra asks for educators as they're revamping and the possibility of moving to a year-long calendar, and that which I like that you included that social distancing piece of that being something that could help out with that piece, but making sure that our teachers are taken care of, that they're compensated for um, these changes exactly. and the additional time requirements. Exactly. It's not, and I'm glad you mentioned that because it's not, it's not, okay, well, adding more of the burden of that on the teachers, it's no, it's investing more in the the capital that you have accessible on your campus and supporting the teachers uh, to see that, that, that any type of adjustments in those areas are not only actualized, but, you know, they are, they're um, effectively implemented. And that means, I mean, honestly, that means tapping into working with supporting and celebrating the talent that you have in house, not, not seeking, you know, an outside voice that, you know, is, is that just doesn't get it. That's either never done it or that, that, you know, I, I, I bring this up often now because it's, it's something that I really think up for us as education, we really need to uh, scrutinize and push back on, uh, are, are the, uh, the speakers that, that talk in generalities and platitudes and, and they've either never done it or they don't offer tangible solutions to many of the challenges that teachers have now and even administrators. You know, I, I like to refer to those as the uh, the snake oil sellers that have, that grace that grace the stage of so many education conferences. Who really they haven't they haven't been there, they haven't done it, but yet they uh, provide this advice and the you know these different um, pieces that it, sometimes they're not even it's just not even realistic, and folks kind of buy into it. No, um, exactly. In fact, I saw this phrase, which I love. It is they basically. They offer nothing more than a word salad of platitudes. Oh, that is, yeah, that that hits the nail on the head for sure. And I, and I think that that's important. Just as a, a side note, is that as folks think about what their audience needs, that they really know the background of the people that they are putting in front of them to to provide provide their um, whether whether it's motivational or trainings or whatever it may be. Exactly. Um, 
You know, and we, we hear, we talked a little bit about this earlier, but we hear folks talking about getting back to normal. Um, but we know that education is never going to be the same and our society. It's never going to be the same after this pandemic. And Winston Churchill said, never let a crisis go to waste, which is so applicable here with what's, what's happening in the world around us. How can we take advantage of what has happened and transform what our education system is going to look like moving forward? Yeah, and I, I, I did. I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I didn't want to uh, give it away. Um, I, I absolutely love that quote, and you know, I think, you know, there's a couple of things. So, one, being able to take advantage of our current pandemic is to basically for educators is ba- to to collectively amplify each other's voices in the areas of things that we have talked about and talked about and talked about and talked about. Standardized testing is an absolute and complete waste. There is nothing that you are going to gain of any real value from a standardized test. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, you know, it's basically saying, look, you know what? I'm no longer accepting of the status quo of things because I've seen myself how it affects students adversely. I've seen how it benefits some students at the expense of others. And I'm just not going to deal with I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I'm not going to do it. Uh, so so there is the idea around educators rallying around each other and amplifying our collective voices uh, that, that there is no going back to normal because what was considered, quote unquote, normal was already flawed in and of itself. And so, you know, I, I think I think there's two parts. The taking advantage of the current situation is amplifying the areas uh, that that many of us already knew existed. But also saying that, you know, the the cookie cutter factory model of education that we had before um, it, we can't go back to that. It didn't work then and it doesn't work now and it's not going to work going forward. And and it really does involve all of the following. It's uh, us supporting each other, amplifying each other's voices. Uh, and then I'm going to go even several steps higher. Uh, being mindful of and scrutinizing who you elect to your local school board being mindful of and scrutinizing who you elect uh, to your city council, your board of supervisors, or your mayor, being mindful of who you elect on the state level as your state representative, you know, state superintendent or something like that. And then also, you know, leveraging things like, uh, you know, and thankfully I've, I've seen, I haven't seen it a lot lately, but I did see it at one point where, you know, many of our media outlets would gravitate towards, you know, just like you put the snake oil salespersons and, and and they would speak from a degree of authority when their authority was really nothing more than, again, a word salad of platitudes. And I go back to what what that quote that I, I found that that, you know, again, be aware of when privilege tries to speak everyone's stories. It's not true. You cannot have a speaker that says, well, this is how it's all done. Uh, and, and especially considering the fact that, you know, not everyone's experience is the same. Not everyone's expertise is the same and not everyone's growth is going to be the same. And so we just, we honestly, we just have to support each other, rally around each other and demand that, uh, that our schools, all the policies associated with it and all the uh, investments, the financial investments in it are aligned with ensuring that all of our students have opportunity and access. You know, it's, 
We've torn down what's a broken system. You and I talk about this all the time. And it's the sense that we keep doing things the same when we know that it doesn't work. Well, now we're not doing things the same. What, What better time to create something new that actually does work for every child? And you mentioned before the individualized education. This is great, a great timing to really think about and assess the needs of each child and make sure that the, that the new system moving forward truly works for everyone. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, we, we've seen examples of humanity at its finest during this pandemic. I think about in my own community, how, how we have a community board already that was in place through Facebook But if someone is making a trip to the grocery store, they're checking on Facebook to see if there's anyone who needs anything, especially for folks who aren't able to get out for our elderly population who they can't leave their homes. And we've even, uh, I'm not even sure which community member came up with this idea, but every night at 8 p.m., folks go outside and they howl. And they howl back to each other. And it's so crazy. I, I know when it's 8 p.m. because I'll hear howling happening outside. It's very confusing to my, to my dogs. <laughs> but we, we have seen, in some instances, humanity at its finest. What are some examples that you've seen of folks really coming together to take care of each other during this pandemic? Uh, a whole lot of things. I mean, granted, um, not everything that is occurring is on social media. Not everything that's on social media is representational of it. But... I mean, I, I, I've seen, I mean, I, I know here in Los Angeles, uh, a close friend of mine, his, um, his father is a, is a politician here and, you know, they've done uh, a food, uh, gone to food banks and supported that. They've uh, done things around ensuring uh, accessibility to at minimum to, uh, to food for, you know, uh, many of our uh, homeless population that is, you know, quite large. Um I know several of my high school, actually two of my high school classmates who um, they work in the fashion industry. In fact, both of them went to uh, FITM, which is a fashion institute for design and merchandising. Uh, they they had a large volume of fabric, so they were putting together masks. And, um, you know, I just and I've even seen in many cases where there are folks that are organizing groups that will go um, grocery shopping for elderly folks. Um, and even something as simple as several of the, uh, grocery stores that I, uh, frequent, uh, not too far from where I live, you know, they open at 8 AM, but, but like, I can't go there from eight to nine 30 because they leave, they limit, limit the, um, first of all, they limit the volume of people that can go in. Um, and then also that, that time frame in the morning is only for the elderly. Uh, so, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that are being done in those areas. I am seeing when I have gone shopping, I'm seeing, uh, quite frankly, a lot of people are a lot more appreciative of the folks that are working in the grocery stores because ultimately, look, they are essential workers because if they don't work, you can't get food. And um, and and not 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 directly related to our conversation, but this is why I'm such a staunch advocate for a universal basic income as well. If they're truly essential, then they should be paid accordingly. So, you know, it's, um, there's all of that. And I have seen, you know, for, for every one, um, you know, noisy voice that I see on social media, uh, that is really, 
uh, operating from a, a, uh, a tone deaf perspective. I see lots and lots of teachers that are like, Hey, I'm here. I'm supporting you. Let's do this. Let's, you know, I, several of my friends, they try to organize weekly, uh, zoom calls just to be able to socialize and check in. Um, I mean, there's a whole lot going on that, that I, it, it certainly is, um, it puts a smile on my face, and I hope for all the listeners that they are able to identify, just like you and I did, they're able to identify things that are occurring within their local community that, you know, at least put put more of the humanity into what we're dealing with right now. And, uh, you know, my only hope is that it becomes sustainable. It, it's kind of like, I'll, I'll share this a little bit with you. It, it reminds me of how, and, and it's, it, it I don't, I won't say it's a specific date, but for some reason, when we get to right around November 30th every year, I just, I notice, I observe the demeanor of people's change because we're getting into the holidays and people smile a little bit more. They're, uh, they're a little bit more friendly, uh, things like that. And then come January 2nd, it's all gone. Now, of course, it's very anecdotal what I'm sharing, but my main point with that is that I hope that people are able to use this also as an opportunity to not only celebrate, but to make sustainable the humanity that we truly are a cooperative society. And, you know, that's, that's why a lot of us are, have our stay at home orders and, you know, you have other areas where they won't adhere to it or they refuse to um, adhere to it, that it does affect all of us. And so I think that we can look at the positives around, you know, the, the support that has been provided and the response that we both have seen and hopefully others have seen uh, that put more of the humanity back into us dealing with this situation. That's, and, you know, and it's interesting too, just to see how we've, how slowing down as a society has caused people to be more observant and to be more mindful of other people. And I, I agree. I, it's, it's something that I hope it continues after this and that folks really do continue to shine and watch out for one another. Yes. Um, you know, and, and in closing is at first, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners and also uh, how can listeners, I'm sure there's going to be folks that want to reach out to you and even even knowing your expertise in instructional design and a virtual platform, I'm sure that that folks who are struggling right now with with wrapping their head around creating this remote learning environment, that there's services that you can provide that will be very beneficial. So how can people reach out to you and what else would you like to uh, share with our listeners? So, well, first of all, I appreciate you having me on here. I mean, you know, we this is a conversation that you and I have had that is recorded. Obviously, we have other conversations that are just as fruitful as this. It's too bad we can't record all of them. But, um, you know, sure. I, I think for your for, for your listeners, given given your audience, I think, you know, for those of us that are staunch believers in advocates for and in my case having worked in a CTE world I think this is an opportunity also for us to really emphasize again going back to a question that you had asked earlier the whole equity side of education you know there's there if you think of if you look in terms of many of the essential jobs that are being done right now how many of those are likely to be filled by an individual who would have benefited from or who might have gone through a CTE program uh, I, I I do not want CTE programs to be looked at as an afterthought a dumping ground or you know let's just put the kids over there you know that kind of thing it, it needs to be uh, one of the pillars of an educational experience um, for our students and so I think 
you know, for the listeners, this is again, this is us rallying around the importance of that, that I know many of them already know that, you know, even something as simple as sewing. I mean, I, you know, I'll keep it short, but, you know, I had sewing in, in middle school. I learned how to sew. I learned how to sew a button on a shirt and many other things. How valuable would it be to have more of our population, uh, available and have the skills to sew right now so oh, and that's absolutely. Just one. yeah exactly so that's just one i mean i could go we don't have enough time i could go down a list uh, uh, uh across at least a dozen if not more uh cte programs that i can say if not for this this is what this would be the consequence so you know i think for the listeners again it's it's us really pushing the narrative around CTE programs should be accessible uh, to all students. Uh, and, you know, and, and, and on a side note, I've even shared, uh, which I think was in a conversation you and I had before as well, that, you know, if a school doesn't have the resources to run a CTE program, guess what? You now have the experience around distance learning, regardless of whether it's good or bad. Why can't you have a dedicated room on campus that connects to a community college that does have the program. Now, of course, you got to get into the whole accessibility of resources, but my main point is there are ways to navigate around some of the obstacles and barriers that existed before, and it's not going to necessarily solve every problem, but we certainly can mitigate the impact uh, in many areas. So to me, that would be one of the things I would just share with the listeners. And ultimately, I hope that I'll be able to be connected with everyone through the various platforms, whether it's the Twitters, the Instagrams and things like that. My website is kennethshelton.net. Um, and and if, if, if it's easy to do also is just if you do a Google search, Ken Shelton Education, uh, I'd be the first result that pops up. So, uh, you know, I'd love to be connected with everyone uh, who's listened to this. And hopefully at some point when we're past our current distancing, physical distancing uh, policies and regulations, that I'll be able to meet everyone in person. We'll be able to talk and we'll be able to, uh, you know, again, high fives and forge a path going forward that we're supportive of each other. And we celebrate um, all of the accomplishments that we were able to do because of that. And for the folks who are listening, if you click on this podcast, it expands and you'll be able to see Ken's blog post and I'll make sure his contact information is, is included in there. So make sure you connect with Ken and thanks so much, Ken, for being with us and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. And for our NCLA members, your support enables the great content like the podcast and also our webinar series. So please be sure if you're not already a member of NCLA as your professional organization, please be sure to visit our website and join. And also, if you'd like to be a guest on a future podcast, please email me at info at ncla-cte.org. Or if you have topics that you would like to hear addressed on this podcast, please email me and share those topics with me as well. All right. Thanks for being here, Ken. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.